0: I'm Katie Ritchie, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com. And I'm here on the line with our chief critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. And joining us again, our Hollywood editor, Hilary Beesis. Hello. Uh, so we have, <laughs> I keep saying we have a lot to get into because we have had a fascinating run of shows, even though there's no movies coming out or a few movies, um, we keep having a lot to talk about, which is a great problem to have, um, the back half of the show, we're going to have more Emmy season interviews. We have, uh, Mike and his wife, Elise Jordan talked to JB Smoove, star of Curb Your Enthusiasm. And I talked to Merritt Weaver, the star of HBO's Run, as well as Unbelievable, and then before that, we uh, Hillary and Richard and I got on the line with Angelica Jade Bastian of Vulture, who wrote a fascinating essay about *Gone with the Wind*, which you might have heard about in the news lately because it is temporarily not on HBO Max, uh, and will be returning in proper context. And um, I think Angelica provides a lot of that proper context. But first. There is some news in the world we care about most, the Oscars. Um, What felt like kind of inevitable happened yesterday, that the Oscars announced that they will be postponed until late April. uh, And eligibility will continue into February, which in theory will leave a lot of room for movies that have not come out to actually come and be eligible. Um, But Hillary, you kind of more enmeshed in the the story, working with Anthony Breskin on his story. um, What do you feel like is actually going to get accomplished by this?
1: Well, that is a great question. Um, (laughs) The short answer is, who knows? Um, I mean, the long answer, the reason that the Academy is doing this um, is, I guess, you know, in hopes that movie theaters will be able to open as usual at some point in the next eight months. It also, uh, by pushing the eligibility, by pushing the air date back, um, that means pushing the eligibility date back to February 28th, which means that films that did not get to complete their productions, um, either shooting or post-production work, will now have more time to hopefully get completed and make the eligibility cutoff, um, and therefore be able to compete at the 2021 Oscars. Um, So that will uh, make the pool a little bit bigger if they if the Academy had kept uh, the 2021 Oscars, um, two movies that only premiered either streaming or in that short theatrical window before coronavirus, uh, upended the entire world. But by December 31st, the pool would be a lot smaller. Um, So in theory, the pool would be a lot smaller. Like, yes,
0: you know, it's the thing that I think we're maybe all stuck on and probably the Academy is too that like, this is assuming a lot of things that nobody knows is actually going to happen yet. So exactly. So what, like, what are they accomplishing? I guess no one will really know what it accomplishes until it happens.
1: Right. Because maybe theaters will open at some point. Uh, maybe we'll see Mulan in theaters this summer. Who knows? Maybe not. Probably <laughs> Mulan, not.
0: the movie <laughs> that the world awaits so much. <laughs> um, Richard, how do you feel about it?
4: It seems like a, the most practical decision at the moment, but I think it's also like another example of, you know, people rushing to really kind of establish a time frame that really can't sort of exist for certain right now, you know, like, I I understand that there are business reasons why you have to set a date, you know, um, and to have something to plan for and, you know, sell ads against and all that. But we don't know what's going to be going on in two months or next week or, you know, next winter, like it it just it just feels like a little bit premature in a way. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if that date moves again. You know, I think
0: that's what worries. like I it makes me wish they had just stuck with it and said, you know, 2020 will be whatever it is. We can't predict what's going on. We're going to stick this one thing and have it be a firm date. Like if they keep pushing it back and back and back and then like eventually we've got like two years combined Oscars in 2022. that will be so depressing to me.
4: Yeah, and I, I, look, I mean, some of the timing might have to do with the opening of the Academy muse- Museum, which now overlaps really nicely with um, the planned ceremony in April. And, you know, if you want to call that cynical, I mean, it's the Academy show, it's their museum, they're, they are they can time it however <laughs> they want, you know. But, you know, the conspiracy theorist in me, which is not a big part of me, <laughs> wonders Maybe does the Academy know something uh, about studios release plans that we don't yet, you know, it's been interesting just kind of getting a couple emails here and there this week about the planned fall film festivals. Like it seems maybe Telluride is going to happen in some form. Um, I, I'm, it's my understanding that the Venice film festival is at least bringing some people to Italy for the festival in late August. Um, so I don't know, it seems like some gears are in motion based on information that we don't have. Um and I don't mm-hmm. know if they have that information either or if everyone's just kind of making it up as they go along. But
0: Well, like I don't think they know things. I don't think Disney knows any more about the second wave of coronavirus than we do, but like they You can- don't? Disney knows everything. <laughs> I mean Bob Iger probably knows something, but I don't know if he can predict that much of the future
1: if this was all a Disney plan from the beginning to get us like wondering when we would get to see Mulan finally. Are you saying
0: Disney caused coronavirus to pump up the... I uh, am. <laughs> I'm saying that
1: here. I think the people deserve to know.
0: Please do not sue us, Disney Corporation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like, it do, does seem like the fall festivals are at least going to have to make a decision. And like, part of this just feels like no one necessarily knows anything, but they all have got to do something. So like, If Venice is going to bring some people in person, like even if no one from LA comes, like Toronto has an entirely local festival, like at a certain point, you either have to cancel it entirely or do whatever version of it you can count on when the the future is so hard to predict.
1: And it's sort of, I, I sort of wonder also whether it could be beneficial to studios. I mean, you know, now that the date has been pushed back, I guess this won't be happening. But if it hadn't for, you know... Steven Spielberg to say like, fine, you know what? We're gonna just release West Side Story over VOD and we wanted it to be a theatrical release. It's not going to be one. We're just going to do it this way because that is you know, what this time demands. Um, And I I sort of wonder like what would happen if major studios just kind of decided that we don't know the future so we might as well work with what we have right now, release things over streaming or on demand. until there's a vaccine or until, you know, theaters everywhere can open at the same time, Um, just kind of, but I guess there's just billions of dollars at stake and that there's no way that they could make a fraction of a theatrical releases uh, box office if they did that. So I guess it's probably a non-starter of an idea. Yeah, I mean,
0: Tenet's going to be the first one that you would see potentially do that. And like, at this point, I would probably bet on it just moving to next year. Um, Yeah. But I think they're going to keep trying not to do that as long as they can.
4: It's my understanding that with West Side Story, kind of similar like they did with the bikinis on the on the the TV airings of Showgirls, they're just CGIing masks over everyone. Oh yeah, during yeah. <laughs> during the the dance scenes,
5: mm-hmm, just um, to make you all feel more comfortable. It, you know,
4: like Do it kind night, of Spielberg, you know, he, he he. I'll we'll wear masks <laughs> tonight. <laughs> yeah,
1: it serves
0: as a PSA in addition to a, <laughs> a movie.
4: Yeah. I think, yeah, Tenet is definitely, there is a movie coming out before Tenet. It's a Russell Crowe thriller that is now being, you know, um, crowed about as um, the first movie that now, you know, once America reopens. Um, Well,
0: there's like a rom-com too, right? That Sony bought, um, Broken Hearts Gallery. I got a press release about it. And it's supposedly coming out on July 10th. So probably around the same time as the Russell Crowe movie.
4: Yeah. You know, I I still don't think that Tenet's actually going to come out when they're saying it's coming out, no. I think, I think, you know, especially when we see places like New York City, where where um, Hillary and I are, you know, the cases have gone down, the death rate is a lot lower than it was just a few weeks ago. But neither but of us would are...
1: ever go to a movie theater right now, right? I mean, <laughs> I, no, I wouldn't.
4: Well, I don't know. I mean, I think that the, the thing oh. about movie theaters mm-hmm. is that, uh, you know, they I, I don't really have the, the sourcing for this, but I read something about the contact tracing they did in Tokyo. And one would think that given the the crush of people on, you know, your average subway line in Tokyo, that there would be a lot of cases that originated from the subway. In fact, they didn't because people are standing there not speaking and thus not you know spitting out you know v- the virus essentially um and so you know that's similar to a movie theater where people aren't hopefully talking and and um you know if there is distance and they're careful about cleaning the theaters like that to me seems safer than going to a bar so where people can, are talking so you can and close
0: you can see tenant which is meant to be seen in like silent firm appreciation and like a gentle ha- applause at the end or than like a comedy where people would be laughing and like responding to it
4: Right, you don't want to go to a rowdy screening. Sorry, cats. Like that's that's <laughs> cats over. Cats came
0: out just in time.
4: <laughs> yeah, um, but but yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I I'm I'm thinking a little pie in the sky about that. You know, um, about those realities. I'm sure there are myriad vectors of infection that I'm not thinking about at a movie theater. But you know, I I, I don't think we're at the stage right now where we can be like, well, you have to take a considered risk. I think that you know that's not that we're not there yet. But uh, again, I think because we don't know so much, uh, it really would be surprising. I mean, Tenet is supposed to be out in a month. That does not feel feasible at all.
0: No, especially as cases like New York City is in a much better position right now than so much of the rest of the country where cases are rising really fast and terrifyingly. Well, I just wanted the Oscars to be one thing we knew we could look forward to. And so now I don't know what that thing is. Like, what is the thing? They haven't been canceled
1: entirely. No,
0: but like, oh, I just like... It's moving one of the poles of the earth. And now who knows what else might change? Um, and as I, as I mentioned, I'm like really fascinated to see what else changes. Like the BAFTAs have already postponed. Like you can imagine a lot of other things. The Golden Globes, probably, obviously. Um, I'm curious, Richard, about the New York Film Critics Circle.
4: Um, yeah, I'm not really sure what our, what our plan is. We haven't quite gotten to that stage yet. I, I think that unfortunately... And I'm not going to speak for the New York Film Critics Circle, but I think a lot of other awards bodies do sort of have to follow the cues of, of the Oscars. Um, but but the thing about that that I don't know is maybe that's just a formality. Maybe there, I mean, like we've had during the Trump era, it's like actually there was no set rule for blank, you know, thing. There, people just kind of honored it as a matter of tradition. Maybe the critics groups can still, you know, stick to their um, their schedule. I mean, I think the thing about the critics groups, maybe more so, is that like. Maybe we wanted we'd be a little bit stricter about the calendar year, and and I think that we might be able to think a bit more uh, inventively and dig a little deeper in terms of the film, you know, uh, the films of the year to find the gems um, in a limited year. Um, I you know Cam and I just we had Cam on last week and we talked about our best movies of the year so far. That's ten really good movies, you know. And there are things we had to leave off the list. So there are probably 15 really good movies that have already come out this year, which is, um, you know, if we get 15 more, that's 30 movies to choose from. That's not a small selection. So um, I don't know. It'll be interesting to see how much the Oscars dictates uh, how everyone else behaves. Obviously, the televised award shows where there are a lot of people in one room like that, they're going to have to follow a certain, you know, the same guidelines. But like groups that can easily vote remotely, I I don't see why we couldn't just do it in early December like we always do.
1: Yeah, Richard, um, you bringing up you and Cam's uh, list of the ten best movies of twenty twenty so far made me think about how if they hadn't moved back the date of the Oscars, um, there would have potent- There would have been potential for this to be a really interesting Oscar year, in that because all of these big studio films that have that are you know made for theatrical release by design aren't being released, it could have been a year that forced the Academy to focus on smaller films independent films um less flashy films with less big names in them and you know shining a light on the sorts of things that maybe can eke out a nomination but don't often make it all the way to the finish line um and i mean i guess that could still happen if movie theaters can't really ever open until there's a vaccine um and this pushed back oscars becomes is basically picking from the same pool um That it would have if it hadn't been pushed back for two months. Uh, But I don't know. So that's maybe a missed opportunity in a way.
4: Yeah, it feels like a missed opportunity and a tell, which is that, you know, there have been movies that have been released in the first quarter of the year that have gone on to Oscar success, I think about Silence of the Lambs, which came out in February and then won, you know, the Big Five and something like Black Panther or Crash even came out in March of its year Grand Budapest Hotel. So it's not like that the Academy totally has a disregard for movies that premiere before, you know, October 1st or whatever. But this decision suggests that they are thinking that the real quality is yet to come, you know? And so I think they're kind of giving away a bit of their bias there by sort of saying, well, yeah, I mean, we had we have had movies, but it's not enough and it's not, you know... Um, obviously, they're working in consideration with studios. A lot of the people in the Academy are working, you know, industry professionals. And and so they have their own concerns about, you know, the stuff that's closer to their heart and they, that they want the Academy to see before anyone votes. But yeah, it just, it, it sort of, it, it does kind of highlight how... I guess, how how much of a construct the whole sort of idea of when quality movies come out really is. It's
0: fascinating to think about what if this was a year that Get Out had come out or Silence of the Lands or Black Panther or Grand like if, if any of those movies that did get nominated for Best Picture come out, because it doesn't feel like like Birds of Prey is not that movie. Sonic the Hedgehog is not that movie. There hasn't been something quite like this that already came out this year. And I wonder if mm-hmm. we'd be thinking about it differently if like we had Get Out here with us um, tiger king yeah, t- tiger king they're going to change all the r- eligibility rules and that in um, the michael jordan espn series are going to be our best picture nominees
5: this year i'm going to eat better and spend less time and money at the grocery store thanks to butcher box butcher box is the meat delivery subscription that gives me more time for what matters most each month they send a box of the highest quality meats for a better price in the grocery store which gives me more time to spend cooking and sharing delicious meals with friends and family Two pounds of ground beef and three pounds of bone-in chicken thighs for free in the first box by going to butcherbox.com/cadence. That's butcherbox.com/cadence. So now
0: we're on the line with Angelica Jade Bastian, a staff writer at Vulture, writing about all kinds of elements of pop culture. And um, you wrote an essay three years ago now about Gone with the Wind uh, in the wake of the Charlottesville uh, riots and the kind of the first round of Confederate statues coming down. Um, and it, it became very relevant in the last week. And I, I saw you tweet it and that you were kind of nervous about it recirculating. Um, how has it been since people have been reading your take on Gone with the Wind again?
6: It's been actually really fascinating, the conversations I've been having around the film because of the article. Uh, For the most part, people have been very receptive to it, Uh, the people who've actually read it. I have gotten comments from people who haven't read it and have a very skewed idea of what my article is, which I like to call that essay specifically Mixed Feelings, the essay, because (laughs) I never really come to a full answer with what to do with Gone with the Wind besides contextualize it, which is really all you can do because that movie is never going to be out of circulation. It is in no fear of being lost to the ages with the conversations around it, how many versions exist. So Gone with the Wind is just fine, but I think it remains a really fascinating movie to talk about with this depiction of racism, the South um, and white womanhood specifically.
0: Yeah, when the when the news went around last week, the HBO Max had taken it off. Um, I imagine you probably rolled your eyes as many people did at the idea that it was being censored, since as you said, it's like so baked into our culture that like it's it's never gonna go away. Um, so, did it surprise you to the extent to which people like got up in arms about it?
6: No, because it happens every few years. If you know, if you're a fan of classic film, you know the conversations around Gone with the Wind backwards and Ford because they happen. Every few years, it's the same conversation, the same voices, the same issues, the same people who probably haven't seen the movie talking about it. It's like time repeats itself.
0: Yeah. Um, So, with this, with your essay, which obviously people should read uh, if they haven't yet, you kind of set it up calling it a cinematic monument to the Confederacy. But it, it feels like your goal in the essay itself is to explain why it's so much more complicated than that. Like, why Gone with the Wind isn't as easy as a statue and, like, Do you think it is a cinematic monument to the Confederacy or is even that too simplistic to you?
6: I think that's too simplistic because in many ways, I think it's more a monument to the failures of Hollywood liberalism, because it's not like the people who were creating it, like David O. Selznick, were from the South. The first time he went to the South was when the film premiered. So you know, that's something to keep in mind with who actually created this movie and ushered it into existence and gave it the beauty it has, because it is a very beautiful movie, even if it is one of the hardest to watch as a Black person, just seeing how Black people are depicted in the movie. I was re-watching it earlier today, and it's just amazing the way Black people are talked about, the way they're shot in the movie, the way they're framed by the acting it's a very frustrating watch even though i have seen the movie very very many times
0: yeah i want to talk to you and then everybody else on the line too um about your personal experience with with the wind since you write about you know growing up in louisiana as a black woman like it was something that it seems like you were exposed to early and kind of always had an affection for even if you know your ability to rewatch it it's gotten more complicated over the years
6: Yeah, that's definitely an accurate way of putting it. I've always been fascinated by the Southern Belle as a figure. You know, the Southern Belle is a figure that is allowed to white women specifically, but I think she's a fascinating emblem of, you know, when we talk about desire and power and who has it and who wants it. She's one of the ripest American creations, in my opinion. Um, But one thing that rekindled my complicated love for the film was I took a class in college just on gone with the wind it was a criticism class so I've seen the movie backwards (laughs) forwards I've read so much about it um, which is why I probably put so much into the essay I wrote because I've had so many complicated feelings over the years and I finally felt like I had the language to describe what gone with the wind represents for me as a black woman from the south and also what it represents in our culture
0: um, Hillary, you came armed with your copy of Gone with the Wind. Um, you've got, uh, I guess, a similar backstory with the movie that you've watched it a, a million times, right?
1: I've seen it a million times. I've read the books mul- book multiple times. Um, I have not read the bad sequel, uh, which is called Scarlet, but I have read The Wind Done Gone, which was a parody version published in the 90s, Angelica, or mm-hmm. the 2000s? Yeah. yeah. Um, that's, uh, written from the perspective of Scarlett's half-sister, um, who is a child that her father, uh, fathered with, uh, one of his slaves. So, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty steeped in Gone with the Wind. I sort of came to it as, as a book first, as, like, the first long book I ever read when I was 11 or 12, um, and really grew up loving it, uh, as, like, a melodrama, as a beautiful movie, um not really understanding any of the context behind it, like having a very childlike understanding of everything from 30s Hollywood to the the actual antebellum period. Um, and so, yeah, it's certainly different to watch it now in a modern context. Um, and especially, you know, comparing the movie to the book and having read up on the movie now, like seeing how... David O. Selznick kind of thought he was making a progressive movie. He made a lot of efforts to kind of, in his mind, correct the like racial sins of the book, which is crazy that in 1939, this counted as a positive depiction of the antebellum South. And you keep, Hattie McDaniel won an Oscar for it. Uh, I don't know. So there's a lot of a lot wrapped up in this movie um, and for me personally. Um, But Richard had never seen it, I think, before we decided that we were talking about it today.
4: Well, I mean, I'd seen parts of it because it just feels like when I was growing up, it was always on television. And because it's, you know, nearly four hours long, you're inevitably going to run into some part of it while flipping through the channels. But yeah, I really only came to it in full as an adult, you know, have, you know, sort of after reading Angelica, you know, pieces like yours. And um, it was really fascinating to read that Atlantic article that really goes into the, the kind of studio history with it. And, and yeah, I I think because I don't have a sort of childhood relationship with, or, you know, a younger relationship with, with the movie, I think I saw it at least from my perspective, from like a more, I guess, filtered through sort of contemporary understanding of, of, of the movie and the era it depicts. And um, yeah, for me, it, it sins seem very glaring in a way that like I don't are not offset by a, any sort of affection for it. And I wonder, you know, because like you said, Angelica, this movie is not going away. Um, I'm just curious, like how subsequent generations younger than us and, and uh, people not even born yet are going to process this movie, given how the dialogue around it Uh, has only gotten more complicated, um, and and rightfully so.
0: Angelica, how will the future receive Gone with the Wind? Please tell us.
6: I actually had so many thoughts when Richard was talking, because I want to make it clear that even as a child, I recognized the racism, because racism has always been in my life. So like, I don't think I ever had a childlike fascination with it so much as a curiosity about how I've always been curious how white people work, to be completely honest. And watching Gone with the Wind is fascinating because of its history and the context of liberal Hollywood thinking they're actually doing something good. And, you know, when you watch the movie, it's just like your brain short, short circuits thinking, how could anyone think that these depictions are good mm-hmm. or sanitizing anything? But in terms of the future, what I hope for future generations is that the anger that they feel with Gone with the Wind, they take it to modern Hollywood too because a lot of these problems still exist. We just see them in different forms right now.
4: I, I think something that I've found fascinating about your piece um, is the point is the line you draw between Gone with the Wind and Twelve Years a Slave, which is a movie that, you know, a lot of people, critics like myself or, you know, who've said, oh, Well, no, this this is the way to get it right. But you, you astutely point out in the piece that like but that movie Allows so much distance that the the white a a white audience member can put between themselves and that movie, whereas Gone with the Wind, because it was such a sensation, still you know when adjusting for inflation, the highest grossing movie ever made by some calculations, that movie's legacy is so much trickier for white people to confront and and i think and and correct me if i'm I'm misreading your piece but for you i think uh, what it read to me was that you see the, the there's more value in people kind of interrogating that than something like 12 years a slave which again allows for that remove that lets people kind of think they're off the hook because that's just so remotely in the past
6: Yeah, that's definitely what I was going for in the piece. It was actually really interesting rereading like a piece from three years ago and being like, huh, I could have written this today because the kicker still hits. Man, wow, I'm actually smart and good at things occasionally. (laughs) That's Uh a great feeling. yeah I was like man it took me three years to realize this was a good essay Um, (laughs) uh, but yeah that was definitely the point I was getting across and I was worried that was a section I was very worried about would be construed the wrong way because I am slightly critiquing a film made by a black filmmaker that's about slavery you know and that can and that's a very beloved movie for some people 12 years a slave because of it's brutality. I just have a very strange relationship with when I see black violence on screen. It's hard, to be honest, to watch that. But I definitely realize that it has a distancing effect for others. And I think that distance needs to be interrogated as much as Gone with the Wind should be interrogated.
0: I think the way um, you get at the Hollywood's tendency to congratulate itself on its progress really hits hard for me reading now, like the way that Hattie McDaniel winning the Oscar, like everyone was just like you know, um on Karina Longworth's podcast, she did about Song of the South. She plays a clip of um Faye Bainter, I think, introduced her and was like, I'm so proud to give this award to this woman. Um, kind of congratulating them for being so progressive, even though she was like barely allowed to be in this whites-only hotel. And you think about Jared Leto winning an Oscar six years ago that would never be given to him now because we were so, like, proud of ourselves for showing a trans woman on screen. Like, it just, it, like, things change, and everyone sits in a position currently and thinks, like, well, now we know how things should be. Um, and Gone with the Wind is such a great example to look back at it. And, like, they didn't know anything then. We probably don't know anything now. And progress still has to keep moving forward.
1: Yeah, yeah. and that, uh, that Atlantic story from 1999 that got into uh, the making of the movie, um... And David O. Selznick's obsession with like including the N word in the movie, which was a story that I hadn't heard until I read that, um, he was really like worked really hard to try to get that word used in the movie. Um, and it was only after activism from the black press that he didn't. And then he kind of viewed it as a concession so that he would be able to include the word "damn," which was another fight that he had to have with the censorship board. Um, this was, you know, something that then became a mark of the movie's progressivism that it doesn't use the n-word uh so yeah just all of all of the background is wild from a 21st century perspective um not that we have made as much progress as we should have by now but
0: yeah the way that um frankly my dear, don't give a damn is so famous being like whoa i can't believe they said that and somehow the fact that it was tied into trying to get the n-word into it is left out of the the popular cultural um memory of how that worked Angelica, you were talking about, um, you know, watching old movies and kind of like viewing this in context, like when you see Gone with the Wind compared to and I don't know how much you know about this specifically, but like how the antebellum South and how slavery was depicted at the time, like, can you tell that it was progressive for its time? Like, is it obvious looking
6: at it uh, compared to everything else that existed then? That is such a tough question to answer, because I think, you know, on one hand, you can say, oh, Gone with the Wind is progressive because yes it leaves out the n-word and they're just called darkies which is just as <laughs> just as fraught and uncomfortable to hear um and there's no beatings and like the white people treat their slaves nicely and they're very aware of that but If you read the black press at the time, they were not having it with this movie. And I Mm -hmm. think, you know, when you when we have these conversations about, oh, back then this movie got made and obviously people just weren't as smart as we are now. I think it behooves people to actually read black writers around the time certain movies come out, because it will show you a whole different critical conversation and show you how since the very beginning Gone with the Wind has been argued over. So I think that's something to kind of keep in mind when we have these conversations.
4: Yeah, I think exactly. And I think, you know, we were talking about this. um, We had Franklin Leonard on a couple weeks ago, and we were talking a bit about how something like that, like, you know, sort of ignoring the Black writing about a movie like Gone with the Wind at the time of its release is an example of the, the failures of who is doing the record-keeping, you know, um, and who's keeping the history uh, in this particular case of, of the film industry. And the narrative of the movie has been told in such a way by a largely sort of, you know, white record-keeping that, yes, yes it has its problems, but at the time it was greeted as this great thing and it was it was progressive for its time. And and that's because that's the only story that's sort of been enshrined in the sort of mainstream, I guess, of, of like Hollywood history. When, in fact, you know, that was not at all true, and I think that's part of the reason why when you read the critiques of the movie from you know 1939, it sounds so similar to critiques of movies now. It's because, well, we haven't learned from those things because we haven't really confronted them or, or really interacted with them, and I think that's something that's so... I guess, frustrating about about the, the, the particular legacy of this movie, because it seems like the good lessons to be gleaned from it, particularly for white audiences, have not been learned because people haven't really bothered to engage with them, I think, in any serious way.
0: There's this amazing picture in the um, that the New York Times did an article um, kind of talking a lot about the same things in this Atlantic article. We're talking about it, the process of making the movie of uh, black protesters outside of a screening of Gone with the Wind in 1940, holding a sign that said you'd be sweet, too, under a whip. Uh, and Gone with the Wind hangs the free Negro. And it's it's just such a striking photo that I had never seen before. And like the idea that there would be protests outside Gone with the Wind is something like you were saying, Richard, that just gets like filtered out of the history, like, you know, so much of our American history in general. Um, so, Angelica, you said you rewatched the movie recently. Like, it's it's something that sticks with you. The question that I've been grappling with, having, you know, rewatched it myself for this and, like, been kind of, like, fascinated and repulsed in all these ways is, would you tell people to watch Gone with the Wind? Like, aside from, like, cutting it out of film history, like, is it something that you feel like if someone hasn't seen it, they should sit down with? Or should we be aware of its place in our history, but, like, not necessarily spend time with it as opposed to anything else that would teach you about this time in history?
6: So I'm going to be a hundred. I tell people don't watch it. Mm. I think that it's racism is so abhorrent. And also there's a, clear rape scene, if you know if you can kind of, even though her reaction afterwards, Scarlett O'Hara is singing to herself afterwards so like, this movie is what I like to call wild and a mess on so many (laughs) levels but it's also very seductive Yeah. so I tell people to know the context, to read black critics about it, to kind of come up with your own thoughts about its place in history what it represents for Hollywood but it's also nearly four hours. That's a huge commitment. So I tend to tell people, nah, son, don't watch it. You're good. Just read my essay. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if it's going to wind up something
0: like Birth of a Nation, which is like such a huge, important piece in Hollywood history that I've never seen. Like I learned about it in school and i a professor was basically like, we're not going to make you watch this. Um, and I wonder oh, if God really? with the Wind might go the same direction. Yeah. Have you seen it?
6: Yeah, I have seen. I have seen it in film school. Yeah, I assume it's a pretty hard watch. Yeah, that was definitely one of those that I was like, we did not need to watch this, actually. (laughs) Good. I'm glad I didn't, like, miss it out by
0: just learning about it and not actually having to watch it.
6: No, you're absolutely fine. As a Black person and a critic, I give you permission to never have to see that movie. (laughs) Is there
0: something about the seductive... Like, the thing that struck me in watching Gone with the Wind is what you were talking about, the seductiveness. Like, how this movie draws you in, how... Like, Scarlett O'Hara and Rhett Butler are completely captivating characters. They have set the template for so many characters we've seen since then. I was telling Hillary that, like, a light bulb went off in my brain when I realized that Han Solo was just Rhett Butler again, um, but not in the Antebellum South. And the danger of that seductiveness, like, I wonder if there's a value in, like, at least knowing how appealing that can be and kind of like, I mean, maybe maybe more for white audiences and Black audiences. Um, I feel like I got something out of like knowing how easy it is to be able to like, oh, wow, what a beautiful time period this was and um, ignore the reality.
6: Yeah, it's definitely tricky. I felt myself being pulled in to Scarlett's story because, you know, the acting is beautiful. Everybody looks like great and it's colorful and the costume design and, and the way it's shot and it's fascinating to think about the director changes and somehow this came out to be a cohesive movie mm-hmm. is a testament to Hollywood filmmaking and how that can work. So I think, you know, there's certain scenes that I would tell people to watch to kind of know the flavor of the movie and just to understand its seductiveness and its history better. You know, maybe I just want to teach a film class is what I'm saying. I mean, I'm you're going with the Warren. wind class to be fascinating. So sign, I, sign, I sign it us it up for be. your Zoom lectures. <laughs> But I definitely think, you know, you make a good point. That seductiveness is important to know. It's as important in understanding the film as it is to understand its racism on multiple levels, both, you know, the experiences that Hattie McDaniel and Butterfly McQueen had on set, because it was really interesting, like, Butterfly McQueen has had a very different relationship to the movie than Hattie McDaniel, and I always find the tension between them and how they represent very different perspectives on how it means to get progress as a black person really fascinating. So I think it's worth studying the film on that level. Watch a few clips. You know, you don't need all of it. I know this sounds like blasphemy as a film person um to say this, but you know what? I'm I I just don't feel comfortable saying, "Yeah, sure, watch this movie." I there's I feel like with white people, I think white people should definitely watch it, but like My mom asked me if she should watch it, and I was like, I don't think I'm going to tell any Black person to watch this movie. Like, why would I want a Black person to go through—we already see so much trauma on our screens, enough as Black people, that I'm not going to willingly, like, put a Black person through that.
0: Hillary and Richard, how did that seductive strike you guys, revisiting the movie?
4: I think that's something uh, again, Angelica, that you touch on, on your piece is um, the Melanie character played by Olivia de Havilland, who is constantly referred to as the kindest person you've ever met, or, you know, she's just this, she's bathed in this sort of, you know, halo of saintliness and, and decency, even though Scarlet is routinely pretty awful to her. Um, but the important thing to remember is that like she is still very much a white woman complicit in this terrible system and benefits from it greatly and and yet is kind con- is bathed in this in this sort of moral superiority um, and i think that's part of the seduction the 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 kind of the lie that the movie tells um, to a largely complacent white audience that like there was morality then despite this incredible act of immorality that was happening um, around all these people. And, you know, that, that, like I said, that's a lie. And it's a lie well told in a very pretty looking movie um, and well performed by its talented actors. But the thing is deceitful at its heart. And, you know, it's, it's, it it, it can be hard, I think, for, you know, to notice that, uh, especially in the sweep of, you know, nearly four hours.
1: Yeah, I mean, and that's definitely the experience of rereading the book from an adult, 21st century perspective as well um and i mean the book for the record not that this is a surprising thing to hear is much more blatantly outwardly racist than the movie um obviously they're both terribly indefensibly racist but the book uh, kind of says the quiet parts loud in a way that the movie didn't in a bid for progressiveness um reading it like is i guess there is a value to reading it as a white liberal um, to sort of try to understand the perspective of of a racist 1930s southern woman who's been told all of her life about you know how great the old south was um, and like reading it you can sort of see how somebody could be seduced by this viewpoint whereas you know slavery seems like such an obvious wrong, such an obvious terrible thing, such an obviously flawed and inhumane institution. Reading the book, though, makes you understand sort of how somebody could not think that. um, Because it's really, it's really uh, convincingly told, um, as Richard said. And so in as much as there is value in it, that is the value, I guess, I don't necessarily think that that is enough of a reason for anybody to read it. Uh, but, you know, looking back at it now, that is sort of what I what I got from it. Um, yeah, it's it's a it's a really tough read.
6: Yeah, I don't <laughs> um, think I'm going to read it. I No. <laughs> Angelica, have you ever read it? I've only read parts of it, like from my college class, because just to kind of see differences between the movie and the book and no, thank you. I'm not going through all of that. that, that no, that yeah. book is too oh, much. Uh, I was gonna ask to you
0: um, maybe maybe to wrap things up. Uh, you talked about the four hours you would spend watching Gone with the Wind. Like, is there anything like if someone says like I want to learn about something relevant to this? Like, is there a direction you would point people something else you should watch? Like, maybe not a depiction of slavery, but
6: like any a, another way to use your four hours. Another way to use your four hours that has Hattie McDaniel in it. And it's not four hours, not even (laughs) close, because, you know, one of the great things about classic Hollywood movies, like, a lot of them are just, like, a beautiful, like, 90 minutes, 95 minutes, you know, like, they kept it tight at Mm -hmm. times. I was like, man, that's great. I would recommend people to watch In This, Our Life. It's a 1942 movie directed by John Huston. It has Olivia de Havilland, Betty Davis, Hattie McDaniel, and... I don't want to spoil it because it happens later in the movie, but it's one of the most stunning depictions of white women's racism that's actually taken to task in a really fascinating way in the form of Betty Davis's character, Stanley Timberlake, who frames a black man for murder um, that she committed, and it's a film that James Baldwin actually wrote about in his book-length essay, The Devil Finds Work, um, which I think would actually be a really good companion piece for people who wanna read criticism from a different time that is potent still to this day. Definitely read James Baldwin, The Devil Finds Work. I think that would be very eye-opening for people, no matter what your race is, about how film shapes us, how race has always shaped film and the power of film in general, which is a very seductive power that I feel deserves to be grappled with. So maybe between the movie and the book, that's four hours. That seems like a good time exchange.
3: So this is fun for me, hopefully for the audience too. My wife, Elise Jordan, and I interviewed J.B. Smoove, uh, who plays the amazing Leon on Curb Your Enthusiasm, our favorite your favorite show would you say
2: i think it's the best show ever on television the smartest most comedic hilarity and i think larry and company and jb are brilliant so during quarantine you know a woman's got to do what she's got to do so i just basically beg my husband to let me participate
3: <laughs> and you know for those of you at home who don't know elise she is a political analyst on msnbc did i get that right
2: yes you did i'm glad that you know what i do babe <laughs>
3: I mean, you know, is that technically what it's called? (laughs) Yes. But And so usually I'm the one turning Elise on to movies and TV shows just because my job is much more in the entertainment world. You're more in the political world. But you have really gotten me heavily into Curb Your Enthusiasm. And and sometimes Elise will just kind of, from memory, be like, you know what we need to watch? Like, what's an example?
2: Uh, Well, Hurricane Katrina season where JB makes his... Grand entrance is right. a pretty special season. Yeah, uh, there's so many good seasons.
3: How many times have you seen the whole probably show? Probably
2: watched every episode at least twice, and some episodes I've watched like five times.
3: Yeah, I've watched some two or three times with you, and I know you had seen them already. Um, all right, well, we had a great time with JB, didn't we? Talking to him.
2: Yes, we did. I was kind of a dork because I was fangirling out a little bit. It was, <laughs> it was even though it was a remote interview, but.
3: Yeah. Um, well, it's hard not to. With, He's with,
2: pretty cool. He's yeah. kind of the epitome of cool.
3: He is. The man behind Leon. and You know, just want to mention we did this uh, about a month and a half ago. So it was before George Floyd's murder and the protests and the Black Lives Matter um, you know, movement that's kind of taken over so much of the country. So that's why we didn't discuss that stuff, but we talked about being in quarantine, and we talked mostly about curb your enthusiasm. So, hope everybody enjoys uh, listening as much as we enjoyed uh, having the conversation. And thanks, Elise, for doing this with us.
2: Thanks for letting me do it, and thanks to the little gold audience, the little gold men audience, for putting up with me this week.
3: The little gold monsters—that's what <laughs> we decided to call them. Okay, here is JB. So. We're really excited to be here with JB Smoove. Thank you so much for joining us on Little Gold Men. And uh, I'm here with my wife, Elise Jordan. Curb your enthusiasm, super fan. And uh, Elise, why don't you why don't you ask the first question since you know more about Curb than anyone I know.
2: Well, I don't know about that, but <laughs> I just wanted to ask how you're holding up in quarantine, and then how do you think Leon would be holding up in quarantine right now?
7: Oh, I am. I am. I'm holding up, man. I think it's one of those things where, you know, because when you are a stand up, when you are doing film and TV, you can write anytime. But I think when you are a performer and you're so used to being on the road and you see uh, 15, 20 shows all get canceled, I think I think we we have a tendency to think ahead of ourselves, like because uh, we have to have a schedule and not just for it for our work, but we have to have a schedule for our families. And let them know when's a good time to go on vacation, when's a good time to go see my mom, when's a good time to fly across the country and do this and visit friends and catch up and family reunion. I got a family reunion coming up in June. You know, all these things you have to schedule for, not just, you know, uh, work related, but also personal time. Uh, and JB, JB loves personal time. You know, I'm a an <laughs> RV fanatic, so I, I, I love to have my RV parties all summer at the beach and all my friends who normally come to my RV parties are all disappointed. You know, we, we have a great time. 70, 80 people show up. I have this 40-foot RV, and we all just, everybody brings some food, and we just we got three grills, and I bring their families. I bring my eight bicycles and my two hoverboards, and we have our volleyball game, our big old-school versus new-school volleyball game that the old school has yet to win. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, where does this happen? Where where do you have these parties? We go to uh, uh Will Rogers State Beach over in um in, in the Palisades. It's like it's really outside the Palisades, but it's really considered Malibu. And um we uh we go down there we have a ball man and um we play like I said we play volleyball and um you don't realize how old you really are until you start playing volleyball. Like <laughs> You can get away with certain things in basketball. You you know you stand over there and wait to get open. It's just shoot the ball. Volleyball is a little different. <laughs> you realize how old your knees are. And you try to bend down, and this right here, this is this right here is a different set of muscles. When you try to hit that ball back, you know. Uh, yeah. We do, all, but I think I think I I think uh, he would fare better than me. I think Leon would definitely fare better than me. I think Leon is a uh, you know I think Leon's very content with. He'll he'll be content with watching binge watching Netflix all day and hanging out and you know peeking the house once in a while, see what Larry got going on in the fridge, and um, you know, give Larry some good, bad advice, catch up on what's going on, what he's got himself into. And I think uh, you know, he'll have people visiting. I think I think Leon would break all the rules though. I think Leon's gonna have a hard time with social distancing and <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think Leon would have some ladies over. I think Leon would get deliveries, and I think I think Leon would forget his gloves and forget his mask. I, th- I think Leon would be in bad shape. <laughs> <laughs> um,
3: yeah, no, that's true. I, I love what you said about good bad advice because that does seem like a real constant in the in the show. It, how, how much of that advice is do you make up, and how much of that is is in the script?
7: Ooh, man, I think I think the, the benefits of being on a show like Curb for any imp- improv lover is, you know, of course we have like an eight-page outline, but at the same time, that eight pages is so is, is detailed, but as far as dialogue is it's very vague and and you kinda it, it's kind of like uh walking on a tightrope with no net. You know, you get a mm-hmm. but it's also fascinating because I find it cool because, you know. When you, when your character doesn't have an origin, when you, you have no idea where he came from, I mean, whatever he says is kind of, you know, you you create your own storyline, and I think that's what I get a I get a I get a, a natural high out of just just not knowing at all what I'm going to say. I think my first three <laughs> I think my first three seasons on the show, I never I never read the outline, so I I I didn't want to like for some reason I, I just felt like I would overthink it by the time I got there. So I wanted a natural reaction to whatever Larry threw at me or whatever was going on on the show. Which I, uh, and that, you know, and for some reason, I I found a way to separate myself from the Leon character. Um, And, you know, even when I would shoot all day, uh, majority of the time, I wouldn't even, I wouldn't even know the special guest. I wouldn't even know you know, I would get to the set and, and literally ask Jeff Schaefer, the, the, writer, the head writer. And I would say, hey, man, um, so, so what's going on? And I would find out what happens right in the moment. And then I would say, OK, I see what's going on here. And I could just jump right on it. But, you know, I, I just found that to be an easier way to have a natural reaction to the show. I think that's what makes Curb so fun. I think this makes when people find that out, that is, you know, unscripted and there, there is no dialogue. I think, I think that even fascinates people even more. That, knowing that though, you watch the show with a different eye. You, you see smir- yeah. Larry smirking a little bit, like, <laughs> like, like he just heard it for the first time. You know? Even in um, uh, blocking and, and, and laying a shot out, we don't do any, any lines. We just say, blah, 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 blah. Because Larry doesn't want to hear anything that you might say. He wants to have a natural reaction to whatever you say and um, you know and Larry has this genuine smile that kind of lights up the you know he has you know Larry just has this smile man he you know and being a stand-up I think when you get him on his heels you know you know you got him on his heels you know, is
3: that what you're going for? That's the target, right? That's gotta be your goal. Is like can you get can you break Larry? Mm,
7: I love breaking him, man. I can tell when I got him. I can tell when I got him on his heels too. I can tell when I got him on because he gets a little quiver. Like this, Rick just starts to quiver a little bit here and he tries to hold in there. He's like, oh, oh, what are you talking about? Huh? I can tell that he's he's on his heels. You know, and comedians, that's what comedians do. We we listen very intently to what our audience Loves about us, and I think we, you know, is it our mannerisms that night, uh, delivery, our um, body language? What is it you know that this audience loves about uh, this show tonight? And I think comedians want you to pee your pants, we want you to pee your <laughs> pants, we want you to <laughs> drink out. You know, I always tell people, I, I'm going for the I've already done that, you know, that's all that's all been done already, you know, rupture of spleen. That stuff is easy. That's easy stuff right there. <laughs> but uh, So
2: this season, when do you... Can you think of any instances where you broke Larry?
7: Oh, man. Uh, it was... <laughs> See, uh, here's what I do. I give him something, and then I'll do it, two, maybe three or... Four. Maybe I'll do it a few times. And then when he stops laughing, I change it up. Whether they, use right. it, whether they use it or not, I change it up a little bit. There's a few things that didn't make the show that I wish made the show, you know, Who I was, remember the, um, what, what, what scene was this? um. Oh, there's like, there was a version about, uh, when Larry had the, the bleeding rectum, the bleeding rectum. Yeah. <laughs> and I was doing, I was telling him about the, you know, you know, people are going to create stories about you. You're going to be like a, a, a nursery rhyme, or you're going to turn into, you know, you, you're going to have a st- whole story built around you. It's kind of like that little boy, who, uh, when the dam broke and there's a little hole and the water was shooting out, and he put his finger in the hole to hold the hole so that the water wouldn't shoot out, you know, a little boy had on the little shorts, the little vest, the little the little ruffle shirt on, you know, he had a little hat on, you know, that little boy, you know, little dust boy, put his finger. So that little dust boy is putting his finger in your ass, holding the blood in, see? And he's like, what? Him, oh. <laughs> what, what do you mean by a little dust boy? Why, why would a little dust boy put his finger in my ass? <laughs> Stop the blood, man! To stop the blood. Oh, that ain't uh, me,
2: well, this season just had so much crazy material. I loved the Maga Cap episode. Oh, yeah. I loved the Big Johnson Club. Oh and man, the Big Johnson community, man. How, how can
7: you go wrong with the Big Johnson community? Um, oh, and that. Speaking of that episode, there's so many scenes that, like I said, that you know you, you never know what Larry's going to put together because you know he does the editing, so he puts this this whole season together like a puzzle. You know, and he gets certain things from you, and a lot of things end up don't making the, not making the show. But like for instance, on um, in the Big Johnson, um, Big Johnson episode, uh, I think I think my <laughs> the first thing I thought about, I said, "Man, okay." So I think the first or second take, I said, um, they didn't use it, but I, I thought it was freaking funny to me. It was like, uh, and we t- he talked about the robe coming open, and him seeing um, uh, Funkhouser's Johnson. And I was like, okay, okay, you, you saw, you know, his nephew's uh, Johnson and all this kind of stuff. And I said, what would really help is if they, somebody made little robes for your Johnson. That way, if your real robe pop open, your <laughs> Johnson also has a little robe, with a little belt around it. That <laughs> Extra cover. So your, yeah. a real robe should come with a, a small robe, too, for your Johnson. You know, I thought that was so silly. We, but, we
3: need an outtakes episode. We need a full,
7: uh, I, I told Larry all the time, we need an outtake, outtakes, man, straight outtakes. Every, every, I think yeah. every legendary scene you know about Kirby has an outtake, you know, hell, the Getting That Ass, the Getting That Ass uh, episode must have at least <laughs> five versions of Getting That Ass. I think one involves lighter fluid and matches. <laughs> it's like a, you turn into an ass arsonist of some sense, you know?
2: So sometimes, and this is the best part of Curb, just when it is pushing the boundaries, saying things that are making you so uncomfortable. You know, last season it was the veteran with PTSD. I told you, I was like, yeah. no, Larry's going to get in trouble <laughs> over this one. I mean, this one he's going to get in trouble, right. but he never gets in trouble. It's so well done. But have there, have to, has there ever been anything that you're like, whoa, now this is risky?
7: Oh, man. You know, uh, you know, as funny as Curb is, it's probably the, the smartest show to me on TV. They find a way to be relevant. They find a way to, as they say, Curb is as funny as it is cringeworthy. So it's one of those shows that, you know, you got to love it. You know, I met people who say, man, I love it. But ah, the minute something Larry covers, he does something that I just went through, it just gets on my neck. You know, I got to I got to turn the channel, you know, because they just can't take it. You know, Uh, I think the Trump stuff was very, very edgy to go towards the uh, Make America Great Again hats. And I think that really, you know, was really, really a fun episode. But at the same time, I I know Larry got a lot of letters uh just because you know how how divided the country is, but uh also I think when my first second season um the Michael Richards stuff was really really different and and kind of uh you know Larry had to approach it a certain way, and you know he had yeah had I think there's a i think you have to find some way to make it funny, but find some way to take the just that little layer of sting off of it, you know I think most most people that I know. They like to have a show's take or a comedian's take on something, because I think that's an easier pill to swallow than uh, the real news and the, what's really going on in the world. And I think we yeah. need we need a balance of that. Otherwise, we become stagnant in our thinking. Our, our brains don't function the right way. There's no growth to your thought, to your opinions. You know, I think I think you have to have that. If we don't, yeah. if you don't have that, you become blank. You know, become hollow inside. And I think we need to have something fill that void, you know, I think that's what humor does. And I think that's what keeps um, Curb and, and any other show that takes uh, chances like that going, you know.
3: You know, you mentioned Michael Richards. I want to ask you about that because it's amazing when you guys go and have the kind of Seinfeld reunion and you start to realize that was the first time I realized watching it that, you know, there is a connection between Leon and Kramer. Right, the same way that there's a connection between Larry and, and uh, George. I mean, but but do, have you ever thought about it that way? That in some way, in Larry's mind, you know, Leon is Kramer. Like they're they kind of function in the similar way. They sort of show up out of nowhere. They're eating food out of the fridge.
7: Right. I, I think I think that's what makes um, I think that's what makes TV writing so unique. Comedians do that all the time. We write what we know about. You know, and I think that's where most of us are most comfortable in thinking in our in order of things. You know, and I think because most shows that I've been on, even when I, you know, shoot curb, and then I go to do a, you know, I have another deal with Fox or CBS or whatever. You know, a lot of times they they there's a formula in TV. You know, um, sure, Leon could live someplace else, but would you get as much? mileage out of Leon if Leon had to come over Larry's house all the time. Like, what would his reason be to come over every day? You know, you could lock your gate or not answer the fu- lock, not answer the door or whatever. But there is a, a formula to TV, which is you put the people together, and that makes, you know, conflict and head-butting, and why are you eating my food? Why are you drinking my juice, you know? But still in all, you as the actor... I still have to work within those boundaries. So it's still challenging for you, no matter what is given to you. Because every, almost every minor decision character-wise, you know, anything from, I'm gonna give you some little tidbits of, of like little things I like, I, I think make TV and make characters have depth. You know, like uh, something as simple as, you know, Leon wears a robe, right? His robe. Now, this is, these are decisions and things that even before I stepped on the set, you know. If you notice, Leon never has a belt to any of his robes, <laughs> as one does. Yeah. I told one of I said, Nah, I, I don't think he, I, don't, I think I think he, he should have some robes, but I don't think he, he should have any belts. You know, I think he, <laughs> I, I just found something cool about folding that and holding the robe shut with my hand, that to me gave, I don't know, it felt like a, a Napoleon kind of thing where, you know, you get a chance to state your case, but this hand right here holding that robe shut, you know, it's something cool <laughs> about that. You know, and, and like, like little decisions like that to me, you know, um, you know, the chains, the Leon chains, first it was just a plain chain. Then, you know, it was an LB. You know, Leon Black. And then this season, I say, you know what I want to do? I want to put a bunch of Leon's sayings on the chains. And then, you know, <laughs> and, and these are just little things. Because I, I, I truly believe in um, little tidbits of, of things that people see and can get a rise out of, you know?
2: Well, I'm shocked that you haven't won an Emmy yet. For your role as a super fan, I'm just shocked. They just robbed you, man. It's, good, we're,
7: yeah, we're gonna it's going this. to be
2: your year <laughs> this year. If any voter is listening right now,
7: oh, I so are you that.
2: excited about the Emmys?
7: Oh, I'm. You know, I'm always excited about the Emmys. You know, because the show has so many pieces to it. You know what I mean? It's so hard to like, you know, single yourself out. You know. Because the show is so, it's like it's Larry is, you know, it's like, the first thing I, I, I'll say this, I, I just think we end up where we're supposed to be somehow. You know, the first thing I ever did when I started doing stand-up was, I'm talking about maybe 1990 maybe, 1989 maybe. I took an improv, I took an improv class in maybe 89, 90, I'm telling my age right now, but uh, I took an improv class at the Improv Comedy Club in New York. And that club was already on the verge of closing down, but that, la- that last summer, I took an improv class. And my teacher was uh, Marty Friedman. Uh, Marty Friedman's from the SCTV years. Um, amazing guy man, amazing improv teacher, and um, you know, good friends with La Michaels and all that kind of stuff. Great guy man. I took that class, and um, you know, right after my class ended, that club closed down. So I took that little improv little skill, put that in my toolbox. And, you know, always perform in improv, you know, life of the party kind of guy, but at the same time on stage when I'm doing stand-up, I mean, sometimes 30, 40% of my act is just improvising, you know, because I, I just listen to what the audience is laughing at and I just milk, I'm a milker, I'm a good milker. I just, I just keep <laughs> milking stuff, you know. I like to, you know, so uh, I take that and I... um. And That becomes my my that's my that's my thing man, and I think uh you know years later, I have an opportunity to watch Kirby Enthusiasm. I mean I watched Curb for a few years loving the show. I would spread the word you should watch Kirby Enthusiasm never in a, never in a million years would I expect to love a show like that, you know envision myself on that show like that. And, um, you know, I think the universe works on, in some ways to guide you towards something. I think we just got to be ready for whatever it is.
3: Well, JB, we, it's so great talking to you. Thank you so much for taking time. Before we let you go, cause since people have a lot of time to watch TV right now, and anyone who has HBO streaming can watch any Curb, if someone's going to watch one Curb episode, what would you say?
7: Ooh, this got me in trouble before. So I tell I tell you, I tell, you, I'll tell you a quick one. This is a quick one. So, uh, I think a few years, uh, maybe two seasons ago, uh, it was the New York season, and um, I think I was being uh, considered. Uh, and, uh, and Larry, me and Larry got into it because you know I asked Larry which episode should I submit, you know, for consideration. Now he thought, he thought I should have submitted the glasses episode where Leon wears the glasses and becomes really smart. Or, oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I thought, I thought Leon arriving in New York was the fun one. Cause I liked Leon driving the Prius across, across the country, you know, him not having an ID to fly, him talking about how you have six people in the car and a baby seat and all, I thought that was, <laughs> where's my room at? all the things that happened when leon arrived in in new york i thought that i thought the new york season the the, the, the new york season is still my favorite i'm a new yorker and i just loved it uh, yeah so he thought he thought it should have been the glasses i thought it should have been leon's arrival so another one of my favorites is when larry asked leon to snatch the purse uh and, <laughs> oh, yeah. uh, and the therapist ended up uh, the therapist it's called whatever um I think that was freaking. I just loved. I just loved Leon sitting on the couch, and this whole plan that Larry had about you. You you know, snatched it. I need you to take the purse. You know, you take it and run with it. You know, I'll I'll take it from you, and you know, then I'll be a hero. And I just Leon just went into a full. You know, what he was gonna do. I'm gonna. So I take the purse. You know, I run, Larry gonna chase after me, try to get the purse back. I fuck Larry up, I keep on rolling. <laughs> <laughs> <I'm telling> you, <laughs> wait a minute, minute what? <laughs> what? Wait a wait, minute. Wait. What do you mean, fuck me up? <laughs> <laughs> I, just, I just think that's, that makes me laugh. Uh, overall, that makes me laugh. But um, I think the New York season, the Michael J. Fox, Michael J. Uh, Michael J. Fucked up. I mean, there's so many there's so many episodes that I just love man who is also probably one of the most amazing people I've ever met also Michael J Fox so we met yeah. on, we met on the set and um, he invited me to his charity and um, man I just I love that dude man I sat at his table and everything man he, he is you know one of my childhood TV show you know heroes so meeting that guy is like oh, man he, he's 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 awesome dude man
3: that's great Oh, and you guys are gonna come. You guys are gonna do another season, right? We're gonna. This isn't the end.
7: I don't know, man. Larry makes his mind up, man, and, and no. uh, I don't. I don't know what Larry's gonna do. But you know what? We, it's it's hard, man. I I had so many different projects uh, ready to go, you know. And we don't know how life is gonna throw a curveball sometimes. Yeah, I think this yeah. this whole thing we're going through right now, as bad as it is, and bad as it could be, or or as bad as it won't be, it is, you know, it's almost humbling in a way. I always say, you know, you 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 can live beyond your means or you can uh, live within your means. And, and, you know, I think this is one of those things that evens the playing field. You know, it makes everyone think about humanity. It makes everybody think a little bit better, you know, because, you know, we, you know, we we have a way of taking things that, Aren't important and making it so important, and I think this this has definitely uh, centered people better. You know, you know, we 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 just gotta, you know, as 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 crazy as this whole pandemic thing is, we it's really about how we react to it. So if we can just keep our yeah. heads, man, we can be creative again and get back to you know solving solving this puzzle and, and get back to, you know, being able to live the way we're supposed to live.
0: And now we're going to share the interview that I did with Merritt Weaver, who stars in not one but two Emmy-eligible series this year, which is really something. She's on Netflix's Unbelievable. And then the thing we talked about was her role on Run on HBO, which premiered, I think, early on in the pandemic and served for me at least as a really fine escape, which I think I tell her. Um, as you're going to be able to tell, like many of the Emmy season interviews we're running, uh, this interview was conducted uh, in the spring after the pandemic had changed everything, but before the... George Floyd protests had changed everything all over again. So that's a valuable context for the conversation. But it was really interesting. She talked about a lot of things about why she doesn't like to give interviews which is a very meta thing to hear when you're giving an interview Um, and got really detailed about the way that she has worked on acting as her craft and what it's like to have grown up as a child actor which is something I wasn't even that familiar with before um, I was preparing for the interview. Um, she's, She's more thoughtful than the average interview subject which I really appreciated And I thought she was great. I hope you do too. So yeah, how's, uh, are you, so you're staying in the city?
8: Yes, I'm, I'm in the city. Yeah.
0: How is it, how is it feeling at this point?
8: You know, (laughs) (laughs) you know, yeah, that's the, yeah. You know, you know how it's feeling. Well, like uh, you know,
0: life has to go on in some way, and you have to, like you know, do press for your show while, like, it feels like the world is collapsing. There's this weird, and like, there's this weird cognitive distance for everyone. I think.
8: Yeah, it's been a strange thing to navigate. How to feel appropriate doing that? Um, Yeah, yeah, and it's a new, honestly, it's a new experience and a new skill for me, anyway. So, yeah, which part? Um press I think Mm. is somehow still or maybe this amount of press or uh the nature of this kind of this kind of press what this round has felt like is new so I'm on a a kind of I'm realizing I'm on a steep learning curve anyway so yeah (laughs) but I'm sure that everyone is feeling um a real strangeness, or I assume everyone, listen, I hope everyone else is feeling a real strangeness (laughs) around how to do this, how to support people who supported me, you Mm -hmm. know, while also feeling um, like tonally and emotionally appropriate as a person in the world right now.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Although I don't know what kind of feedback you get on, on your work or on Run specifically, but I do think, that, like, the value of escapism is so big right now and, like, things that people can watch in their houses. There is a kind of a
8: value of that. that I maybe think was that's maybe completely, completely true and completely valid, and I get that. And I actually – I envy people who can, um, who can escape right now. I've, I've mm-hmm. found that I've had a hard time, like, watching things and um, been having a hard time reading And I've I've been having a hard time um, watching things. I think getting lost in narrative has been uh, difficult for me, which feels like it's a very distant cousin of something that happens to me when I go to work, which is I, I can't, you know, when I'm working on a job, I seem to be unable to... Enter any other narrative. I can't read something. I can't really watch something. Um, I think it's because there's always this other story engine that's running whenever I'm working, whether yes. I think it is or not. And something that is, you know, much more traumatic. <laughs> you know, I don't mean to. Like, I, I, I'm backtracking and comparing this to my experience of going to work, but uh, I think something's happening right now where there's there's like another. There's another constant engine running and yeah, I, yeah. I can't lose myself in, um, I can't lose, seem to lose myself in in story the way I would like to, because I could use an escape. I think everybody could.
0: Did you film this and unbelievable close together in any way?
8: My goodness. Yeah. I went in, I auditioned for this and then I went to shoot unbelievable. And that mm-hmm. was, you know, over the course of several months and then I went back in to read with Donal towards the end of filming, Unbelievable. Mm-hmm. So, and then I I flew directly from Unbelievable to Toronto to shoot the pilot. So it was it was strange, and 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 one of the reasons there was a lot to be. I mean, there were many reasons to want to be a part of Run, but one of them I think. looking back was that I had spent months shooting Unbelievable and that energy, Mm -hmm. what that part required was so different than this. And I think that there was a part of me that was really craving um, a chance to live in a different energetic space, get to play a little bit, have some room to breathe because Unbelievable that that energy was so tight and so relentless and driven and focused. And this is kind of the opposite. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of space to play. Or perhaps I wanted that very badly and, and decided that I was going to give myself that room and that space to play.
0: Does Marriage Story offer a similar kind of? I mean, I know I, I imagine that was filmed before Unbelievable, but I think about the, the the comic tones of Marriage Story, and that movie is not like necessarily a comedy, but you get to kind of live in a um in a more comic element of that, and that does also seem like a useful um contrast from something like Unbelievable.
8: Yeah, but that again, you're you're right. That was shot way before, so I, I it wasn't like one thing was in response to the other, or or yeah. wanting to kind of claim that space in response to not having had access to it. It for months,
0: yeah. Um, to to go back to you um, reading with Donal at the very beginning of this, um, I was reading something written about it that like it, it had made people wonder if you guys had a real life relationship because you guys have such a connection that's on screen. Um, and I'm curious if if something if what we you know as reviewers would call chemistry if that means anything to you as an actor or if it is more specific or like more ineffable like does it, when someone says you have chemistry with one of your co-stars does that register for you or does it feel like a different description
8: well i don't know i'm i'm i mean one thing i'm clocking is that people only say that you have chemistry with someone when they're talking about um a relationship of this nature you know what i mean nobody nobody sees I mean, and again, perhaps I'm wrong. I'm often wrong, but like I, <laughs> when I think about it, I don't think of like um, believably acted mother-daughter relationships or mm, sibling mm-hmm. relationships or, you know, teacher-student relationships that are referred to as having chemistry. I think that's a word that we use in reference to or or put on relationships of this nature, yeah. you know? Um, but I... I don't know that the work as an actor is any different just because this is the nature of their relationship than it would be if I was, you know, playing something else, you know? Um, yeah. And I, but I understand the kind of interest or fascination with it because I think in real life, we don't have control over whether we have, to use your word, chemistry with someone. Mm-hmm. We all know what it's like to, to want that thing to be there and for it not to be there. But Vicki gave us so much to play. And I think that we are, I mean, she gave us so much to play. It was like looking down and having this huge garden and just, you know, pick your, I don't know, that this felt that felt useless i'm gonna stop right there with that but like <laughs> no, I, but I also mean, think i also think that we're playing two characters who are paying excruciatingly close attention to each other mm-hmm. or I, I can only speak for myself as an actor but so much of ruby in so many ways is going to be is going to depend second to second on what billy is doing how he is speaking to her, how he is behaving. And so I had to balance, you know, keeping myself excruciatingly open to his character, but also somehow staying tethered to myself as an actor. But listen, I'm glad if people believe this relationship, I mean, that's what actors want. You well, know? I think so you, that's a good thing.
0: Everyone has seen some kind of rom com or romance where you have two characters who are gazing at each other, and you're supposed to feel something, and you don't. And I think when you when you feel it as a viewer, you notice it immediately, and that can be the actors, and you know it can be great writing. Like there's a combination of things that go into it, but I, I think it snaps you into attention the way that you wouldn't if it if it wasn't working
8: as well on screen. Well, I'm so glad then. <laughs> no, really. We we both I we both worked very hard and tried very hard. So,
0: what is the I mean, is the work that goes into that is that you building the character on your own so that the the script kind of feels authentic to you, is that the two of you together building something? Like what is the what is the hard work um that comes into making that relationship feel real?
8: Oh, my goodness. I mean, I don't know. So, are you asking if we did that work somehow together, or if it was done? Yeah. Separately? Well, I mean, well,
0: I mean, like you know, I can imagine, like you know, you're working on something like Godless, and you say that's hard work, and you imagine a period piece and like costumes, all that. That's the hard work. And I'm curious about like what is the what is the part you dig into on something like Run?
8: There was a lot. There was a lot. In the same ways that it, it offered a surplus of opportunity of, of of things to dig into, it also there were. It was really it was challenging as well. But one thing I noticed, you know, when it came to Donal and I is that we, I think that we value similar things as actors, but our way in to the work is different. And, you know, the experience was of going to work almost every single day and doing the work primarily with one other person. And so it was interesting, I think this job enabled me for the first time out of necessity to kind of examine the way that I worked and be able to kind of articulate it for myself and then for other people so that we could both kind of move forward and, and get what we needed and do what we needed and protect what we needed while also hopefully protecting the other person and what they needed. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was really interesting too. But um yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: Do you have a, a kind of a, base, a general starting point whenever you get started on a character or something? Like when, when you say you start the work, like what is, what do you usually start with?
8: Uh, it starts with the material, with mm-hmm. working on the material. I find that, um, yeah, it starts with the page and then trying to notice what comes up for me. Again, not in my head, but somewhere else. Hmm. Um
0: and is that something you've had with you since you've like you know you started acting when you were pretty young? Is that something you've learned over the years that you've adapted or is it kind of always been where you started?
8: Um I think that has always just been my way and I don't know if it would have been my way. Yeah, that that's yeah. my way. But I almost get a little nervous and scared talking about it, right? Oh sure yeah, I don't want you to like give away the house secrets. <laughs> no, I know you're not asking that, but you know, I I I get scared sometimes, it was a frightening thing to have to articulate the way in which I worked. It it made me nervous because I worried like, well, what if that's not the way I work? What if I shouldn't be working that way? What if Mm -hmm. I do it wrong? What if it goes away? What if I shine a light on something and then something happens and and it's no longer accessible to me? So the truth is, yeah, that's one of my battles, I think, with whatever you want to call press is that talking about the work sometimes takes me away from the place where I do it mm-hmm. and I worry sometimes especially when it's around a part that I might come back to that spending too much time in my head around it or spending too much time in in looking at it from the outside will somehow keep me if I have to go back to the work or the next time I go to work will keep me from accessing it the way that I'm used to accessing it
0: yeah but, yeah I'm always fascinated by people who start acting young, and I think you were a teenager when you um, started acting. But I, I wonder if what you did for acting work as a teenager feels recognizable to you to what you do now. Or if you have grown as a person, as we all do, from being children um, so much that, like, I don't know if you watch all performances, but if if it feels no, recognizable I don't. to you as well, right now. Yeah, I mean, I, I can imagine how hard it would be. I right?
8: don't. It's hard enough for me to um watch stuff i'm doing now i i actually had never thought about going back and looking at old stuff that feels painful just the thought of it <laughs> it's like reading your old diary yeah i don't know that i would i don't know how intensely or intensively i would watch my own work now if i didn't somehow need to in order to understand what we all made so that I can talk about it Do you know what I mean Mm -hmm. and I but I have found that in some ways um, watching it when it comes to seeing the project as a whole allows me to kind of learn what it is that we all made and what we were doing Um, but
0: do you ever get surprised by that when you watch it and like kind of you know what you thought it was that you all were making versus what it actually is I mean, I imagine on something like Run where you're at the center of it, there's fewer surprises than, you know, something where like Birdman, we have a you you would think
8: that, and yet run has been maybe one of the most surprising.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Do you know can do you know why?
8: I don't yet. It's Mm. a really good question, but I also don't know that I've been able to watch run without a lot of emotional and cognitive static. Mm -hmm. Um, not just because of what's happening in the world, but because I've not I've never carried this kind of weight and responsibility. Um, and so it's just, it's a lot. And so I don't know that I trust my my eyes yet when it comes mm-hmm. to it. And I don't know, you know, and we're still kind of doing post and ADR. Um, and And I haven't seen the finished final episodes yet. So in a well. way... In the same way that I think my experience of shooting the show and playing her was always one of feeling a step behind her and frantically trying to catch up, hmm. um, I don't think somehow that I have caught up yet even to the show itself. But again, that that might have something to do with the fact that I find it painful to look at head on. Um, and I usually... Kind of circle watching my work in a Mm -hmm. slow and gentle way. And with press and everything going on and ADR, I just haven't been able to be as gentle in my looking at it. Um, So everything, everything about this has been new.
0: It it feels fresh.
8: Yeah, And, and just a new experience. The shooting of it felt new. There were just a lot of new experiences and new challenges, and having to learn when do I try to do something new or how, when, when is it appropriate to approach the work in a new way? And when is it appropriate to stay tethered to the way that I like to do work and the way mm-hmm. that I've always done work? Yeah. And I don't know that I have the answers to a lot of these questions yet.
0: <laughs> I mean, you hear actors who never watch their own work and I don't know how you, I don't know how you do press without having watched it, but, uh, cause I think what you're saying makes sense, but and I, I kind of get the impulse to just walk away from it
8: very curious about how other people do this job. I'm curious about how other people do the work. I'm curious about how other people survive the work. And I'm curious about how other people do press too. Um, I used to think that there was one right way and I don't know and maybe that's not the case. Yeah. I I yeah.
0: You survived the thing that I think is so hard for people, which is starting when you're young and growing as an adult and having a career beyond that. Like that, that's kind of like the A-level uh, acting career survival thing. So I don't know if you you get insight on it more broadly from that, but that's, that's
8: not easy to accomplish. I don't think I have any <laughs> insight into anything. But, <laughs> you know, my experience, I started doing this young, but I was kind of... Um, My experience wasn't one of, like, working all the time and growing Mm -hmm. up on set. My experience was the painful pounding of the pavement.
0: Right, yeah. Was,
8: you know, getting out of school and calling my voicemail and seeing if I had to head to my agency and pick up a script and, like, do my – whole. you know, my my experience was of being – a pounding-the-pavement actor. It wasn't being um, somebody who, like, grew up on sets and was doing a series at a young age, so... Or got, like, really famous when you're not old enough to handle it. No, it was being a working actor and that I kept, you know, I kept at it and I got these really lovely jobs that I'm I'm so grateful to have had and these lovely experiences. But not of... Yeah, I... I was a a child who was an actor, but I wasn't a child actor. Do you know what I
0: mean? Yeah. No, that seems like an important distinction. Um, That's a vastly different way to grow up versus one or the other. That does it for this week's episode. We'll be back next week. You can find us in the meantime at VanityFair.com, where we have uh, stories about this weird-ass Oscar season and so much else. Um, you can find us on Twitter at LittleGoldMen and on our own. Uh, I'm at Katie Rich, and I'll speak for our guest, uh, Angelica J. Bastian, who I forgot to have her pronounce herself. She is on Twitter at Angelica Bastion and you can find her at Vulture. Uh, and Hillary.
1: At Hillabuster with two
0: R's. Uh, and Richard.
4: At MakeRiffWearAMask.
0: Mm, yeah. This week's episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs, and this week's award for the best description of this year's Oscar season so far goes to Angelica Bastian.
6: Wild and a mess.